see all of you here. Glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you're one of our guests, we're especially glad you're here, and we hope you will stick around after services. Let us get to know you, and you get to know us just a bit better. If you would grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we will be reading verses 17 through 20. John read for us from chapter 7, verses 21 to 27, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what are called the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that Jesus preached on a mountain. We continue our Christmas series, Christmas in the Mountains, walking through the various, uh, some of the mountains, uh, veritable mountain range, as it were, this month, and we come to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17, hear now the word of the true and living God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You would turn the page. Chapter 6. Verse 33, Matthew 6:33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let us pray. Lord God, give us ears to hear this morning. Help us to put away all of the distractions and all the distractions from our distractions, so that we might focus our hearts and our minds on the words of Jesus our Lord. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Chapter 5 of Matthew begins that Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain and he sat down. Sitting was the proper position of a teacher, a rabbi, in his day. We do it standing, as it were. They did it while seating, teaching, that is. And his disciples came to him. Don't overlook that. Yes, there are the crowds. Yes, they will hear this sermon. But it's the disciples who draw near. This is a sermon for disciples, a sermon for followers of Jesus. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, It is the single greatest sermon ever preached. It is a sermon which continues to haunt people even to today. It is only 111 verses. It will take you maybe 15, 20 minutes to read through it. In fact, I invite you to do that this week. And yet, even though it's relatively brief, at least what is recorded for us, I'm confident that there was much more that he expounded to the crowds on that particular occasion, But the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, has seen fit to keep and preserve these 111 verses even for us today. And they are rich in depth, rich in meaning, 
and importance. Now, many people praise this sermon. Of course, Christians would be the ones who praise this sermon. But there are those who curse it. And yet, despite their best efforts, they can never get rid of it. It continues to today. At its heart, at its root, this sermon is a call for repentance. Jesus' preaching ministry, he's gone around preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I believe this is Jesus' exposition of that statement. And so this is a call for repentance. It is the king revealing the nature of his kingdom. That is the kind of citizens that make up his kingdom. The kind of people who come under his reign, who bow the knee to his lordship. This is what it looks like if you would be in the kingdom. It involves a change of mind. It involves a change of action. In other words, you're not going to think the same. You're not going to do the same things that you did before. But also, the changing of one's mind and the changing of one's action requires an alignment with the will of the king. And really, at the heart of that is a change of heart. God taking out a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. God taking out an impure heart and giving you a pure heart. You know, as Jesus begins this sermon, he begins with what are called the Beatitudes. One of them is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, the only way to get a pure heart is to come to God. And in fact, these Beatitudes, they track, beginning with those who are poor in spirit, those who are spiritual paupers, who recognize they have nothing to offer the king. Ah, but once you are in that position, you are primed, you are ready to receive the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is yours, Jesus says. Because of your spiritual poverty, because you are a spiritual beggar before the throne of God, you mourn. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You recognize your humble, your meek position before the king. Ah, but you'll inherit the earth. And, and as a result of your spiritual poverty and, and your mourning and, and your humility, indeed humiliated before the king of the cosmos, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. But not just any righteousness, not your own, certainly. All you bring to the table is unrighteousness. But you hunger and you thirst for the righteousness that only God can give you. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Ah, it's His righteousness, not our own. Indeed, even the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is revealing in this sermon the true nature of kingdom people. The true nature of what it means for people to submit to His kingship. And to be citizens of his kingdom. What does it look like to come under the reign of God? For God to rule and reign in your life. Well, it begins with a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees. We read verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5. And Jesus says here that you need a righteousness that exceeds or surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Again, who is Jesus talking to? His disciples, those who would follow Him, those who would walk in His steps, 
And Jesus here says a certain type of righteous character is necessary if you would enter the kingdom of heaven. Without this righteousness, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness must, ex- must exceed, must surpass that of the Pharisees. And the first disciples, it must have crushed them to hear this. Put yourself in their shoes. All they've known are the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And all those religious leaders, they are so righteous. And so to hear Jesus say, you need a righteousness that surpasses theirs, again, it must have crushed them. It must have been taken aback. Wait a minute, greater than who, Jesus? I want to just make sure I heard you. The Pharisees and the scribes? Jesus, they, they tithe their dill and their mint and their cumin, their spices. I, there, there's, there's no way. They're so righteous. There's no way I can even get close to that kind of righteousness, Jesus, let alone exceed it. Well, Jesus begins to explain, hold on, not so fast. You need to understand that when we talk about righteousness, it's more than just external acts. It's an inside-out righteousness. And so beginning in verse 21 and running through the rest of chapter 5, Jesus identifies the kind of righteous character that you need, and it's on the inside. Do not murder. That's where he begins. Like, yeah, okay, I, I got that. I'm, I've never killed anybody, never took their life in a premeditated fashion. Well, um, have you ever been angry with your brother? Oh, Oh, and angry with my brother without cause. And well, you're, if you insult your brother, you're, you're liable to judgment. You're liable to the council. Ever been angry without a, a just reason? Ever handled it in an ungodly way? Guilty. I can guarantee you, while those Pharisees and the scribes, they never murdered anybody, they've been angry too. Well, you, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I've, uh, this past Monday night during the live broadcast, I gave an extended teaching on this. I'll invite you to go and find Blessed with a Pure in Heart on YouTube if you want to deep dive into this section. But do not commit adultery. And the Pharisees could say, I'm a one-woman man. I've never uh, done that before, never committed adultery. Well, you ever had lustful intent in your heart? There it is, the heart. And the scribes and the Pharisees and all the disciples, all of them indicted. And what Jesus is doing as he walks through these commandments, and they're tied right back to the law. That's why we started where we did last week. Time and again, the religious leaders are indicted and the disciples are indicted that, in fact, you're not pure. You're not righteous. Your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And so Jesus calls these disciples, calls us even today to a righteousness that is pure, not only, excuse me, not only in deed, but also in intention. Not only externally where you're doing things or not doing things that you should not do, but how's your heart? What's your heart look like? All the scribes and the Pharisees, they could be very proud of their self-righteousness. And indeed, that's what's in back of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's arrogance. 
It's self-righteousness. But what is in back of Christian righteousness? It ought to be in back of it. It ties right back to those Beatitudes. That poverty of spirit, that mourning over your own status before the throne of God, that you are a person of impurity. You live among a people of impurity, that you are humiliated before God, that you need a righteousness that's not your own. Again, all those things that Jesus talks about at the beginning of this sermon really points to total dependence, total reliance upon the Father to give you what you cannot take yourself and what you can't obtain yourself. Again, it goes back to the Beatitudes. It's a call to a righteousness that is beyond the Pharisees, but that's a reminder that you are a spiritual pauper, a spiritual beggar before God and before His throne, that in yourself you have no righteousness. You don't have the resources to obtain that kind of righteousness, that you are guilty before the law, and that your spiritual poverty, it drives you to mourn your spiritual destitution, that you are humiliated, that you know that you need this righteousness, you hunger and you thirst for it, and it's a righteousness that is not your own because it's the righteousness of Christ. It's Christ's own righteousness. That's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the righteousness of Christ. That is what God gives us when we come to Him. He imputes, He credits to our account the righteousness of Christ. And indeed, that's the great exchange that takes place. Christ's righteousness is ours, and all of our unrighteousness is laid upon Him on the cross. He pays the debt and the penalty for our sin, and we reap all the benefits and blessings as a result of His perfect obedience to the Father. You see, that's, again, the true nature of the kingdom of Christ, the true nature of citizens of the kingdom. They look to a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees. They look even to the righteousness of Christ. But even this points to another characteristic. As you continue into the Sermon on the Mount, into chapter 6, you see that what Jesus calls us to here is a reliance upon God for all things. A reliance, a dependence upon God. A faith, a trust in Him to give us everything that we need. Chapter 6 begins with Jesus talking about uh, certain spiritual disciplines. And the instruction that Jesus is giving to His disciples is intended to communicate that these spiritual disciplines, they're designed to create and cultivate a dependence upon God. And so, as you give, you are actually looking to God as the one who supplies all of your needs. As you pray, you're looking to the one who knows what you need even before you ask it. As you fast, you are reminded that the next bite of food that you'll be able to take only comes from His gracious hand. All of these disciplines are cultivating a reliance and a trust in God in all things. And so Jesus, it's no wonder, the deeper you get into chapter 6, He says in verse 25, <clears throat> excuse me, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't worry about a thing. <clears throat> and He talks about food and drink and, and clothing and how God, he, he will take care of these things. And if you want proof 
Look no further than the birds of the field and the grass and, and how God is taking care of His created order. Certainly, He can take care of you. What was it you're supposed to pray anyway? Give us this day our daily bread. But instead, what we often exchange that for, we exchange our daily bread for our daily dread. We're fearful and we're afraid, and that's what's at the root of our anxiety and, and our worry, is that fear that God won't come through. And yet again, when it comes to the birds and the grass, aren't you more valuable than these? And so God, He takes care of them. Why wouldn't He take care of you? Surely, He will take care of us. We are valuable to Him, much more valuable than the birds and the grass. That's the reliance that Jesus is calling us to, that if we would be kingdom citizens, we must rely upon God. We must trust Him in everything. And as we learn to rely upon Him, that is cultivating a relationship with God. And, and that's part of, again, what it means to be a citizen, a true citizen of the kingdom. It, it in, involves a relationship with God that is genuine, a relationship with God that is real. We read earlier from the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we come to the end of this sermon, Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus identifies here people who will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? But Jesus is not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, and so we've come back around from where we started, where you need a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, even the righteousness of Christ. That is the righteousness you need to enter the kingdom. And now here we are talking more about entering the kingdom. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, this is a mere profession of faith. It is not a practice of faith. Those who say, Lord, Lord, again, it's a mere profession. It is a mere pretense. It is just, it's just a spoken faith, a said faith. But it's the half-brother of Jesus who reminds us in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, that a said faith is a dead faith. James 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you sees, uh, says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Lord, Lord, it's a mere said faith. It is merely mouthing a mantra without actually doing what Jesus told us to do. It is mere talk with no practice. Mere, merely speaking this without actually doing any actions, even the actions that Christ calls us to. That is what Jesus is speaking to here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, he's talking to disciples, those who would follow him, and there, were, there would be those who would allege to be, who would claim to be disciples, Lord, Lord, all day long. But then their life is all tied up in sin and darkness. And even if they don't express it externally, doesn't the Lord know the heart? And He knows that it's not out of a heart that they're doing this. A heart of faith, a heart of obedience. 
And and looking a, a bit closer at that phrase, Lord, Lord, that whenever you see the double name like that in Scripture, it is intended to communicate a close, personal relationship. That's, that's what it's intended to communicate. Anytime you see that, a close, personal relationship is in view. For example, there are a number of times it shows up in Scripture. I'll just give you a handful. In the Old Testament, remember when Yahweh calls to Moses out of the burning bush? He addresses him as Moses, Moses. Or how about when Yahweh calls to the boy Samuel? He calls to him in 1 Samuel 3, Samuel, Samuel. Or how about when David's son Absalom dies? You remember this in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 18? He says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. You come to the New Testament, during the ministry of Christ, there's an episode where he's at Mary and Martha's house, and Martha complains to Jesus that Mary is just sitting at his feet while she's busy with all the chores. Remember how Jesus addresses her? Luke chapter 10, verse 41, Martha, Martha. Later on in Luke, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has asked to sift you his wheat, and he begins his speech to Simon to Peter by saying, Simon, Simon. And of course, on the road to Damascus, when Saul of Tarsus is on his way there to imprison Christians, he is blinded by a light on the way, and the Lord addresses him, Saul, Saul. Again, the examples could be multiplied, but you see this. It's that the double name is intended to communicate close personal relationship. And here are, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, here are some folks who are claiming to have a close personal relationship with Jesus. Lord, Lord! But it's just talk. It's just said faith, which is tantamount to a dead faith. And Jesus, He knows this. This is why He says, therefore, uh, in verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You claim to know me, but I don't know you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. They don't truly know Him. Because as I said before, if you want to know God, obey Him. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 2. You want to know God? Obey Him. You come to know God through your obedience. These are people who are claiming to know God, but they don't obey Him. And therefore, they don't know Him. And Jesus says, I never knew you. It's a terrifying scene. And it's instructive for us from the lips of our Lord. My brothers, my sisters, my friends, we must never be satisfied with a mere spoken faith. A mere said faith. Indeed, a a mere spoken faith that claims a close relationship with Jesus, but does not live as though Jesus really is Lord This kind of faith cannot save. And indeed, as James says, it is a dead faith. If you claim that Jesus is Lord, and that's what's at the heart of the Lord, Lord claim, you must live as though He is Lord of your life because He is. Jesus says there in verse 21, notice again closely, 
Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There it is. That's the obedience aspect of this. Doing the will of the Father in heaven. But just in case we miss it, Jesus concludes with this parable in verses 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. You hear it? Putting the words of Jesus into practice. Notice also, doing the will of the Father in heaven is equal to doing the words of Jesus. This is, at least implicitly, uh, a claim of deity on Jesus' part. That to do and to practice the will of the Father is equal to practicing the words of Jesus. Because the Father is God and Christ is God to the glory of God the Father. Well, he says that the person who does these words that they have heard, you're a wise man who has built his house on the rock, and when the storm comes, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall because it had been found on the rock. But conversely, on the other hand, in verse 26, there are those who hear the words of Jesus, but don't do them. What's that like? Well, it's the inverse picture. A foolish person who has built his house on the sand and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And I know a lot of time and a lot of ink can be devoted to the, the differences between the, the two builders, and in all, all manner of points can be brought, how they built, where they built, what they built with, etc. Jesus' point here is very simple, though. You want to know the difference? You want to know the difference between a life that does not fall, and a life that has a great fall in it. You want to know the difference? It's this, obedience or the life thereof. A life that does not fall is a life of obedience. A life that has a great fall is a life of disobedience. That person does not do the words of Jesus. That person does not do the will of the Father in heaven. And great is its fall. I also just want to emphasize here the triune nature of obedience, that we obey the triune God. And so, yes, we do the will of our Father in heaven, and we obey and do the words of Jesus our Lord. And related to this, though not specifically mentioned in the text, who is it who has preserved these words of Jesus? Moved Matthew to write them and record them, and has preserved them across time and space so that we who have new spiritual life, can hear them and obey them. It's the Spirit of God. And so the silent partner here, as it were, is the Holy Spirit, and these are His words as well. You obeying them? How, how's your life, my brother, my sister? Here's the, here's the spiritual checkup time, right? Here's the spiritual challenge part, is to hear the words of Jesus and to evaluate your life in regards to the one true and only God that we serve. Are you obeying God in all things? You believe. Are you putting the words of Christ into action? Are you doing the will of your Father in heaven? Are you submitting your life to the words of the Holy Spirit of God that are right here before you? Again, Jesus is talking about what does it look like to be a kingdom citizen, a kingdom person, 
you look to a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees, even the righteousness of Christ. You rely upon God for everything and in all things. And you have a relationship with God that is genuine because it is ultimately rooted in obedience to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A true disciple is a wise person because they do the will of God. Again, you want to know Him? Obey Him. Obey God. This is how we come to know God. You know, last week we began with Moses descending the burning, smoking, shaking mountain in the desert with the law on the stone tablets. And now this week we come and we see our Lord seated on a mountain, explaining perfectly what that law meant, holding it up before us as the mirror, like it is, to show us our own reflection, that we've not kept it, and yet calling us to Himself, showing how He is the only hope in this life or the next, the only hope for spiritual paupers like ourselves who recognize our own unrighteousness and must look to Him by faith for His righteousness, who rely upon God for everything, and who aim for a genuine relationship of obedience, keeping the words of God. And so, through the sermon, my brothers and sisters, Behold the kingdom. Behold the rule and reign of God. Let us pray. We come, Father, as beggars, knowing our own depth of need. And we come as children, thanking you that you have met our deepest need spiritually in Christ Jesus our Lord. May we continue to look to your hand by faith to graciously give us the things that we need. May we continue to put our faith in you and to put that faith into action by obeying you in all things. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit within us, you would give us the strength that we need to do these things that you have commanded. And so we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.